News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever been to the Pearl Harbor Memorial in Hawaii? It's really something. I mean, it tells us so much about history and World War II. And you know what? It's still telling us things today, including about the weather. Yes, the weather. A recent mission to Pearl Harbor and other locations resulted in the collection of weather data from 19 U.S. Navy ships. And we are going to learn all about this project now from Dr. Praveen Taletti, who is a research scientist at the University of Reading. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Simi, for having me. Now, why, why weather data from old U.S. Navy ships? How did this project come about? Well, uh, it's an interesting question because, uh, as you know, as with uh, all things related to World War II period were classified for a very long time. So we lost these observations in, in that way. And it is only recently, in back in 2017, that uh, National Archives in the U.S. Uh, started to declassify these observations. And because we had so few observations during the World War II these observations obviously make a very good uh, choice for us to extract and try to understand the climate during the World War II. So when you say observations, this is when you're on a ship in the middle of the ocean, the normal thing that sailors do? Yes. Uh, so uh, they're, they're not just in the oceans, but also when they were in port, for example, as you said, uh, in Pearl Harbor, uh, Hawaii, or in the Far East, or in the West Coast of the uh, United States, or also I, during my research, I found they were in Vancouver as well. Oh, okay. Observations. And so these yeah. are all in the logbooks. They are all in the logbooks, yeah. And they were taking these weather observations from uh, air temperatures to uh, sea level pressures and water temperatures and general description of weather. Uh, 24 uh, every hour of the day. So there are like 24 observations per day. Well, that's a lot of data then. So with, was some of this difficult to recover? Was some of it difficult to access? Uh, well, not after they were declassified, but as, as uh, these uh, these logbooks were like, we used about 28,000. So I would say they're just like 10% of what actually uh, exists in, in the archives. So we could only use about 28,000 images and it was so hard for any one person to do it. So we used uh, something called uh, a Zooniverse platform, which uh, invites volunteers to come onto the site and uh, write down the numbers which were on the logbook image on a form for us to process it later. And so what did you find by looking at this? Have you had a chance to look at the data? Yes, we have uh, only preliminary. Uh, so we, we found that... Uh, uh, the uh, the uh, maybe a lot of uh, uh, listeners uh, would be interested in what the weather was like during the Pearl Harbor attack, which was seventh uh, of uh, December, nineteen forty-one. So it was a really clear, good day on on that day, and uh, there were a bit of clouds over the horizon, which sort of masked the the Japanese bombers coming into the uh, into the harbor to to attack them. That is so fascinating then. So you, all of that was noted down there. Uh, and so what else did you learn? Uh, so basically, we also could see that uh, the, the, the sort of some, because they also had to record the remarks that happened on, on board. So during these extreme uh, conflict uh, times, so they, were, they would also record different uh, things happening on board, for example, uh, during Pearl Harbor, they, they recorded uh, how many uh, bombers were there, uh, what other ships were sunk, and uh, what was happening uh, on board. But also, uh, for example, there was a, a very big typhoon, Cobra, uh, in 1944, but they were still taking these observations while they were in the middle of this big typhoon. So it's very fascinating to read how... Uh, how dedicated they were to their duty. So what will this do for research then? What will this help? Are these questions that you were hoping to answer, what will this do? Uh, well, uh, so uh, do you know about El Nino uh, uh, weather event? So it's, uh, it's a big climatic event that happens around tropical uh, equator 
west of uh, 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 west of uh, South America. So that that event takes place about five to seven years every year. Uh, uh, there's a five to seven year cycle. So we know from other uh, observations that uh, there was a big El Nino event uh, that happened during the first part of World War. Uh, means from 1939 to 1942 and because we don't have a lot of information a lot of observations from that period we don't really understand how the the El Nino event affected a lot of uh, weather around the world so with this data set we hope to understand uh, how uh, severe the El Nino event was and that could link back to the other extreme events we see around the world. Well, I look forward to hearing more about this as you learn more about this data. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That is Dr. Praveen Tiladi, research scientist at the University of Reading. That's a lot of data they are now combing through. You think about how much sailors collect. This is 19 U.S. Navy ships that were out and about on the water during World War II. And now, with the help of thousands of volunteers, they are transcribing the logbooks from all of these old Navy ships, including some from Pearl Harbor, uh, that they had to get declassified so they could do this. And you know, see what the weather was like, get those observations, and they can actually map a kind of a climate picture of what things were like at that time. And that's a really fascinating project. I'd love to hear more about it when they can make more sense, I guess, of all that information. This is Mornings with Simi. He is back after an extended vacation. People have been emailing me. Don't worry, Von Palmer is here. Welcome back, Von. Good to be back, Simi. Good to hear your voice. Nice I did to listen you. to you and Rob Shaw while yeah. I was traveling, and Why? it sounded great. <laughs> Why were you listening to us while you were traveling? Well, because I'm a BC political junkie, and, uh, you know, like the Eagle song says about uh, BC, uh, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> <laughs> did you have a good trip? A fantastic trip. Uh, highlight, uh, and I mean apart from the Eagles Tribute site in Winslow, Arizona, uh, we took four tours guided by Navajo people in the Navajo Nation. And this is through some of the most spectacular landscape on the face of the earth, the you know, Monument Valley, which you've seen in every western but the navajos still live and work in that area and they take you a tour through and they tell you you know their ranching and uh, all of their cultural activities um upper and lower antelope canyon in arizona and i guess the greatest place i've ever been in my life uh, canyon de Chelly in arizona which is this incredible canyon that you spend all day going through and the navajo take you to their ranching and their peach farming and all that and uh our guide took us to the little farm where he grew up uh, with his grandmother. And so it, it really was, in terms of history, culture, and spectacular landscapes, just a fantastic holiday. Um, yeah, That yeah, sounds amazing. Great. I'm going to have to get all the details from you. I would love to do something like this. Uh, but we do have to talk some politics this morning <laughs> as well. Uh, while you were gone, apparently we got another party in the legislature. Yeah, you know, I, I, if someone had said to me the day I left that uh, you were going to get a, a, a change in the seat count in the legislature while I was away, two changes, actually, because the New Democrats lost a member as well, I would have gone, no, that's not going to happen. But here we are uh, on Friday. The Legislature uh, Management Committee met and very quickly approved a $200,000-plus budget for the office of the new uh, recognized fourth party in the legislature, the B.C. Conservatives. They now have two members. They qualify, and their leader, John Rustad, is going to get uh, a $200,000 budget uh, prorated to hire staff, uh, you know, senior chief of staff or communication director or whatever he wants, resources, because his party is now on par with the Greens. Uh, they're the Greens are the third party in the legislature. The Conservatives are now official, and they're the fourth party in the legislature. They'll get access to question period. My guess they're going to be a longtime fixture on the B.C. political scene. Uh, you can expect to see Rustad in the election debate uh, when we get to an election next year. Okay, this doesn't sound like it would be great news for the other parties. Well, it's terrific news for the New Democrats. They... <laughs> 
Bruce Banman, a member for Abbotsford South, uh, announced, uh, what, last week, Wednesday, Mm -hmm. I think, that uh, he was switching to the Conservatives. And the next day, the government House leader, uh, Ravi Callan, wrote a letter to the Speaker saying, let's have a meeting and give this guy a salary, right, (laughs) or give the Conservatives a salary. So the New Democrats could hardly wait to get going on this. Uh, They supported it. The Greens can't really oppose it. Uh, They voted for the change after all. Uh, they have two members, and they get the, their leader, Sonia Furstenau, gets the salary. Or the, it's not a salary. It's a, I mean, she does get a salary, but this is a, a leader's office budget as well. Right. So they couldn't go for it. And the Liberals, uh, the party formerly known as the B.C. Liberals, now B.C. United, they went along with it. I think, Simi, you're right that they're not very happy about it. But on the other hand, all they would have done is draw attention to Rustad and Banman if they'd resisted it. I mean, they're entitled to these resources. They qualify. And so the Liberals, uh, BC United, went along with it as well. Um, the whole thing took less than 10 minutes. Uh, it was just like, okay, fine. Here you go. Off you go. But uh, no, it's, it's a big political development. The BC Conservatives are, are now a factor in BC politics. And, you know, I see some of the opinion polls while I was away, Simi. Um, they're competitive. In fact, there's one poll out where the BC Conservatives are running ahead of BC United. So uh, this is a huge political development. In Did BC. it surprise you at all? I think the B.C. Conservatives, you know, looking at it from afar, um, the the factor in all of this that I think is critically important is the emergence, the competitiveness of Pierre Poiliev and the federal conservatives. I mean, voters, you ask them about conservatives, they're also tuned in to the surge in support for the federal party. So I do think the provincial party, even though it's a separate party, it's not part of the federal party, is benefiting from name recognition around that. And I thought the liberals were on the wrong track in changing their name. Kevin Falcon said, Simi, that it was going to end confusion in BC politics. I think it's increased confusion. You ask voters who are, after all, busy and have lives and worry about other things, uh, who you're going to vote for in the next provincial election, and you offer them the name BC United, many of them may say, what the hell's that? What's that stand for? And then you say conservatives, and they go, well, hey, you know, the conservatives have been a political factor in Canadian history uh, since Confederation. And the name is well known, and people think what it stands for. So uh, it's not surprising that the move Falcon took to end confusion in B.C. politics has increased the confusion, in my view. Now, Vaughn, we should also mention here that the Premier and some members of his cabinet are headed to Ottawa today. Yeah, a two-day visit to Ottawa by the Premier and key ministers. Uh, top of the list, uh, Ottawa needs to do more for housing and get going on, on providing funding for housing, infrastructure for major projects. I think they were going to be talking about bail reform as well, but I see the feds put that change through, so there may not be as much on that. And I don't know if the Premier will be asking for a proper briefing on this horrible clash with India over uh, alleged Indian involvement in uh, an assassination here, but I expect that'll come up as well. So a busy couple of days, uh, E.B. is taking key ministers with him, and, you know, it's the sort of thing that... uh, B.C. could use a lot of help from Ottawa, but I look at the opinion polls, Simi, and I go... Ottawa, <laughs> federal liberals could do some stuff to improve their standing out here in British Columbia because they appear to be in free fall in the opinion polls. So right. and you've BC got a lot is, of mutual interest here. Yeah, yeah, and we talked to Ipsos on Friday about that. I mean, BC is a three-way tie right now, so yeah. they could definitely yeah. use a little help from BC. Uh, yeah. Another story we wanted to talk about this morning, too. Rob Shaw had a great uh, yeah. column about this, uh, about sometimes when people from different parties do tend to work together. And this is this is an interesting one. This is Selena Rob. Robinson and Eleanor Sturko. Yeah, this is a very encouraging story in one respect. Uh, female politicians have been subject to incredibly appalling threats uh, in public life. It is one of the things when you talk to women about going into public life, they say, I don't need this and I don't need the abuse. 
So what you have here is two politicians from across the line, across the floor, Cabinet Minister Selena Robinson, New Democrat, and Eleanor Sturko, opposition, BC United, are both getting threats and really awful ones. I won't repeat them on the air. It'll only encourage it. But check out uh, Rob Shaw's story in Business in Vancouver or Katie DeRosa's piece in the Vancouver Sun on Saturday. They both wrote about this. So they decide, they get together, they decide they're going to do something about this. Uh, Robinson is unnerved by the threats. Sterko is unnerved. She's been leaving her wife and children away from public events. And uh, they get somewhere. They start off with the Legislative Security Service. They don't get very far. But Sterko's an RCMP officer, former, right, but on leave. And she goes Together, they go to the police, RCMP, in their ridings, and they keep at it. And they persuade the RCMP to upgrade the investigation on this. And they catch, the police catch, the alleged author of these emails, of which there are dozens. The person is arrested, 32-year-old man, believed to have mental health problems, hasn't been charged, but Simi, the emails have stopped. They got somewhere, and the two of them are now saying, Sterko and Robinson, they're here to help other women in politics who are facing similar challenges and give them advice on how to do it. I suggest, Simi, that our legislature needs to take a really serious look at better protective services, not at the buildings where protective services are terrific, but protective services for MLAs in their constituency offices and just on social media. Because this is not the first time we've no. heard about this happening. No, this is an extraordinary case. The threats in this case were extraordinary persistent, as many as 15 a day. Uh, the uh, accused, uh, I guess we'll call him that, uh, tried at one point to set up a meeting with Sterko, and she, uh, her antennae were tuned and said, no way. But it, it's affecting the ability of MLAs to do their job. It's affecting the ability. Uh, um, Robinson said her own staff were, you know, they're traumatized in their oh, yeah. office when you read these things. And the trouble is, is that, of course, politicians are in public appearances all the time. It took them the longest time to even get a picture of the accused here so that they could alert their staff if the if the guy shows up at a public event that they're attending. No, this is very, very serious, uh, Sammy. The, the downside of social media is that it allows the kind of people that, you know, used to heckle in meetings or walk around the legislature buildings with a sandwich board on complaining. It now allows them to magnify their threats constantly, and uh, it's gotten worse. It has gotten worse in the current era, and uh, I again, I don't know the solution, but commend these two MLAs for reaching yes. out across the political divide and for also getting somewhere, for getting the authorities to take this seriously and at least arrest the guy and tell him to lay off. And the emails have stopped. Well, then there should also be a bit of an alert or a notice to the sergeant at arms and, and the legislature security to say, we need a better policy on this. Yeah. Now, the sergeant at arms uh, spoke to the son, uh, to Katie DeRosa, and he said, look, uh, uh, we do have comprehensive protection at the legislature buildings. That's true. And we have for years. He said, also, you should be aware these threats are reported to the office of the sergeant at arms and they are escalating so so far this year there have been 600 threats of one kind or another disturbing emails that sort of thing reported to the sergeant at arms right. office by mlas and their staff so the, the challenge as both sterko and robinson said is you don't know which threats are just BS and people venting and which ones the guy is going to show up at your next public appearance. Exactly. And it, it takes professionals to separate that out. I don't make light of the challenge, but as I said, the only really encouraging thing in this one is that you had members from across the floor, 
putting aside political divisions and saying we're going to help each other, and you had a former RCMP officer involved who knew how to navigate the system well, yeah. and get the investigation upgraded. Uh, that makes a difference. Vaughn, thank you so much, and welcome back again. Uh, good to be back, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Scott's got some thoughts this morning about all sorts of things, including entertainment-related ones. Good morning, Scott. Hi, Simi. How are you? How was your weekend? I'm good, thank you. I was over on the island. It was delightful. Great. Uh, you like Blue Rodeo? I like Blue Rodeo. Sure. I think they should play the Super Bowl halftime show. I don't. Really? Yes. <laughs> you, you Because th- I think most Americans would go, who are these people? Okay, fair enough. But my point is that they are uh, a band that, you know, put on a great show. And I guess you and I talked a little bit about this this morning. I'm a bit dismayed by the choice that has been announced for the Super Bowl halftime show coming in 2024. And that person is Usher. And why are you dismayed by this? Because Usher has a lot of great songs. Yeah, but I just feel like he's not. um, For me, the Super Bowl, it feels like the biggest stage in the world, and it should have the biggest artist in the world on it. And Usher, to me, is not in that conversation right now. So this is an argument that happens and a debate that happens every year when they announce who the person is that's going to be performing at the Super Bowl. And I just want to point out that history has shown that the Super Bowl halftime show is actually more often than not someone who is a a classic performer, somebody who has had a lot of hits, not somebody who is currently riding high in the charts. No, and and I understand that. I think it's I think it's a combination of both that they need to have some longevity and staying power, but they also need Usher to be Usher has longevity and staying power. Yes, they also need to be in the current conversation, you know? Uh somebody that has been mentioned a whole bunch around uh, the Super Bowl and the biggest stage in the world is Taylor Swift. She's currently on tour on the big like it's the biggest tour that's ever been and she's absolutely knocking it out of the park. Now I know a lot of Maybe people she doesn't want to play the Super that's Bowl. That's possible. Yeah, that's possible. But what about Ed Sheeran? He was just here. Not by, American. But by all accounts, like huge, amazing show. You two played the Super Bowl. They're not American. Yeah, but you two is bigger than that. Like you two is kind of transcendent in that way. Okay. Yeah. I just think that there is Ed are. Ed Sheeran really somebody you're going to rock out to at the Super Bowl? No, he is not. And the Taylor Swift thing, I know that, you know, she's in the news this weekend because she went to the game yesterday and it turned into, it turned out that Taylor Swift was there. Oh, and they played a football game. Right. Because that's what happens when she shows up anywhere. Yeah. And the NFL went all in on that. They were just loving the fact that she was there and that was all over social media. Um, What about Miley Cyrus? I love Miley Cyrus. Right. Love the new album. Crazy about the new album and the songs on there. I think Miley Cyrus would be a great choice. Yeah, absolutely. I also, I would be okay with the Rolling Stones doing it again. They've got a new album out. Uh, uh, no. ACDC was mentioned in the conversation. You uh, mentioned Guns N' Roses. Wouldn't Guns N' Roses would be amazing. I think you need people who are going to show up on time and <laughs> pull off the show. <laughs> it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a roll of the sure, dice with sure. Guns N' Roses. And right? I mean, uh, you, you are right. Uh, Usher will put on a great show. He does That's have a history, a long history of great hits that everybody knows the words to it's going to be it's going to be great i just it's not who i, I think you're going to eat your words on that one scott because i think some of the greatest super bowl halftime shows have been ones that surprise for instance the dr dre snoop dogg eminem mary yep. j blige kendrick lamar great show. great loved it and by looking at the list you would have thought i don't know what's up with this that was a great show you know what else was an amazing super bowl halftime show tell me Jennifer Lopez and Shakira. That was good. Yeah, it was great. Yep, I think Bruno Mars was really I good. I love Bruno Mars. Yeah, and of course, like the best Super Bowl halftime show of all time is Prince. Right? We agree yes. on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think there's some room here. We'll see what happens. I. I'm not sure that Taylor Swift is really the way the NFL wants to go right now because yeah. let's face it, by next <laughs> by say, it, ne- say it, Simi. <laughs> by next January, she may not be dating Travis Kelsey right. and then the whole thing could just be very messy. You bet. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. So we'll see what happens and you're right, like it probably will end up being a great show even though it's not who I would have picked. But uh, there's other big Hollywood news this morning and that is that it looks like the writer strike is finally coming to an end after five months of tentative deal an agreement we don't know all the details and stuff because the members still have to vote on it but once once this thing gets ratified uh all those people could be back to work by tomorrow but they won't be because they're not going to cross the picket line 
And the and the actors are still striking. That's right. That's right. Well, okay. How There's about two strikes? The the writers they're talking about like late night, right? The talk shows, all of the those shows could be back by tomorrow without guests. Because like if the actors aren't going to cross the <laughs> well, picket line could, to promote they stuff, could, they who's... could have guests who are not actors. I mean, I guess I, this is just such a tricky situation. What I find fascinating about this, if people have been following along, is your bill is getting bigger. Yes. So your bill, it was great, you know, 10, 15 years ago when Netflix was brand new and you thought, oh, this is great. I'll just add this Netflix. But now everybody wants more money out of us, right? The latest being that even Amazon Prime is now going to charge you extra to not run ads. So oh, they're doing man. the opposite of Netflix. They're going, you have Amazon Prime right now, which you might have it for shipping or whatever, and the TV is mm-hmm. all extra. Uh, now they're going to say pay $2.99 for the ad-free version is what they're going to yeah, tell us. Yeah, I'm not going for that. And that's too much. So I agree, everybody, totally. But there's too many of them, right? There's too, everything is now extra money for this, extra money. And I think those big entertainment companies have to realize we're not paying anymore. We are done. Yeah. And they are still raking in the big bucks. They are the ones who have to live a new reality here. I think so. And I think you really touch on something with this idea of there's too much, you know, you, we get this analysis paralysis and there's too much choice. And it's like, which, which networks are showing the, we don't have the, the, money the ones that I want. This. Yeah. And you have to, you, you know, you have five or six different ones. It ends up being as much as, you know, a cable bill. But uh, I heard somebody propose an interesting idea, Simi, in response to this. Wouldn't it be great if there was one service that you could pay one big fee for and it provided everything, news, sports, <laughs> entertainment, like current current network mm. show? Wouldn't it be great? And you could maybe it would be a wire and you just plug that wire into the back of your TV and everything is on it. Everything old is new again. We've come full circle. You kind of saw this coming 10 years ago, but sure. we have come full circle on that to where, yes, cable sounds refreshing. It right totally does. So, yeah, well, We'll see what happens with the actor strike, but the writer strike looking like it's coming to an end. So that's All great. Right. Well, I just like to see my shows back on TV. Yeah, everybody. New episodes of totally. something, right? Thank you for that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. We have here in the chamber today Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today. His name is Yaroslav Hunka, a Canadian hero, and we thank him for all his service. Thank you. All right, well, it looked like or sounded like a nice moment late last week when in the House of Commons, as you hear there, 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka was honoured in the presence of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. He got a couple of standing ovations, and then the problem started. Big ones, such as... Turns out there are a lot of concerns about Hunka's past and his association with an army unit that worked with the Nazis. How the heck does this happen? Well, joining us now to talk about the political fallout from this is Mackenzie Gray, Senior Correspondent for Global News National. Mackenzie, thanks for being here. Good morning, Sammy. How did this happen? How did he get an invite to this? Well, he's a 98-year-old who lives in North Bay, which is the riding that Anthony Roda, the Speaker of the House of Commons and Liberal MP, uh, represents. And so he was invited through the speaker. Uh, I was in the House of Commons uh, during the address in the gallery uh, and have been for other events similar to this. And uh, the speaker does have the ability uh, to invite people and have them come in. It's also a regular occurrence during question period uh, that after question period, uh, visiting members of other parliaments or uh, important people would be recognized by the speaker like Mr. Hunka was in this situation. Except most of the time when those people come, they have not fought for the Nazis. Uh, Subsequently, since that information came out, Mr. Rota has said that that was his and his decision entirely, that the prime minister's office was not involved. The prime minister's office echoed that, saying this was exclusively on the speaker. Uh, Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, doesn't buy that, saying, look, at a minimum, someone from Global Affairs or from the Privy Council office would have had to vet Mr. Hanka to allow him into the building. Uh, I will say getting into Parliament that day was extremely difficult and tight, obviously with Mr. Zelensky there. Uh, it is a very secure place, and he is someone uh, that lots of people would want dead. So there was lots of, of vetting and taking place to make sure they got on the hill that day. Um, we're going to hear from Mr. Rota likely when the House of Commons starts sitting at 11. Uh, we'll see if he reiterates what he said in his statement or he resigns. We have not heard any calls for his resignation politically yet from the Conservatives or the NDP, uh, but I would imagine that if he does not quit uh, when the House 
uh, starts up later today, uh, we would start hearing that not only from the opposition, but potentially for some liberal MPs as well. This just seems like such a huge breach. I mean, has he explained what kind of vetting his office even did or does in these situations? No, he has not at this point in time. I mean, look, the Speaker can invite who he wants. Uh, We haven't heard from the Privy Council office in terms of uh, what, uh, if any additional vetting or other processes were in place to uh, allow this person onto the Hill. Um, The vetting is not really hard, though, Simi. You Google his name, you can find find, uh, posts that this individual has written in 2011. They're in Ukrainian, but we can Google Translate them. That's what I did yesterday. Uh, and this this individual posted a number of posts talking about his time uh, in this uh, 14th division of the Waffen SS, a Nazi unit uh, that has credibly been accused of war crimes, including uh, potentially murdering a thousand Polish civilians as well as uh, Jews and other Ukrainians. Um, a quote from him from his blog post that again were posted in 2011. In July 1941, the German occupied Bresnahani, which is the Ukrainian town he's from. We greeted the German soldiers with joy. Again, those German soldiers were Nazis. Uh, in 1943, he volunteered to join the fourth, uh, 14th Division of the Waffen-SS, the, the division I was speaking about before, and he posted pictures of him in Munich along with other men from his town training. Uh, and he said in the intervening two years between 41 and 43, he called those the two best years of his life. Oh, my God. So there are many people who might have thought that at the time who joined the Nazis. But with the, high, the ability of time to review what the Nazis had did and what had happened, they could think of things differently. And there is no doubt, Simi, that in that period of time in Ukraine, uh, Stalin was not a good person and they lived under Russian rule and he had killed millions of Ukrainians too. So it is a difficult decision, but there certainly does not seem to be any repenting for Mr. Hanka in his own words for his involvement in being in a Nazi division. Mackenzie, I have to tell you, my mouth was hanging open while you were describing this because that was not, as you said, difficult to find. This brings up a lot of questions. Like, has this not happened before where there have been some questionable people invited into the House of Commons? I can't remember any Nazis showing up. Uh, yeah, this <laughs> yeah, one I, takes uh, the cake, I, I guess. Yes. I, I, I mean, there are vetting errors and then there are vetting errors. And having a someone who... Uh, with a Nazi uh, and called it the best two years of his life said that and 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 did that you know in 2011 when the horrors associated with the Nazis were clear um what does the prime minister's office have to say about this well they say look it's not we 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 didn't know about this that this was Anthony Rhoda this was a constituent of his from North Bay that has come uh, and and uh, been here in Parliament, and it was the Speaker who recognized him. Mr. Trudeau didn't do that in his speech. Mr. Trudeau did recognize other people in the gallery and pointed to them. Uh, to our understanding, they are not Nazis. Uh, so Mr. Trudeau is ahead of Mr. Rhoda in this one. But, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's... it's uh, wow, okay. You can't make this stuff up. No, that's how I, that was my sentiment exactly. You cannot make this stuff up. So we expect to hear more today and... and is there a sentiment of feeling out there, as you pointed out, that there will be a resignation? Uh, look, I don't want to speak to the sentiment. I haven't been able to chat with people. Uh, but I'll say this. Um, Mr. Rhoda is viewed as a very honorable uh, individual for the most part. Um, and if there was uh, agreement from members in the House or calls for his resignation, I would have a hard time to think that he would stay on. That hasn't happened yet. Obviously, the opposition are trying to tie this specifically to Mr. Trudeau. That's what uh, Pierre Polyev's doing. Um, so, you know, we'll see what Mr. Rhoda has to say later today. I'd be very surprised uh, if he doesn't make a statement in the House of Commons, and we'll see if he stays on or if he just kind of reiterates what he said in the statement. You know, he did say that he would accept full responsibility for this. Um, you know, we've heard other liberals uh, say they're going to accept full responsibility for things and then nothing happens. You know, I will say Mr. Rhoda, while elected as a liberal, does not caucus with the liberals as the speaker. There is some separation on that front. Um, so, you know, we'll have to see in the next 30 minutes or so, uh, that would be the first opportunity that Mr. Rhoda could rise in the house when it starts at 11 a.m. Eastern, uh, to hear from him on uh, what he has to say about this. All right. We'll see what happens. Mackenzie, thank you for filling us in this morning. Thanks, Amy. Chat soon. Yes. That is Mackenzie Gray, senior correspondent for Global News National. This is Mornings with Simi. It is official. BC Lions have clinched a playoff spot, but there's still a lot left to do. Coach Rick Campbell joins us now. Congratulations, Coach. 
Thank you. Did you watch any given Sunday? <laughs> of course I did. That was my homework, oh. right? That is such okay, a great yeah. movie. I forgot right. what a good movie that was. Yeah, yeah that is good. It is really good. Even, even Al Pacino. It, oh, you mean I watched yeah, it I and you didn't watch it. <laughs> I know. I was watching other football games. So. I'll bet. Yeah. Yeah. You're busy on yeah, these it was Sundays. Good. It was a good win in Edmonton to, to clinch a playoff spot and to beat those guys three times. So I was pretty proud of the proud of the group for getting it done. Right, but how much do you celebrate? Like, okay, great, you you make to the playoffs, but that's just like step one, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, we don't celebrate it too long. You enjoy it for the for the evening, and then, yeah, the, like you just said, the goal number one in the regular season is to make the playoffs, and then the next goal is to get a home playoff game, and that's what this game this week we play. Saskatchewan at home on Friday night, and if we win that, then we would clinch a home playoff game. Okay, that would be a big one too. Now, let me ask you: Now, Vernon Adams Jr. he he said after the game, it wasn't pretty, but we got it done. He said, "I know I have to be better." What is it that he he feels that he needs to work on? What happened? I think he was just frustrated. We threw a couple interceptions, so yeah, I think he's just referring to taking care of the ball, but. Man, he's uh, he's been really good for us, and we we have some guys that are pretty hard on themselves, which well, um, we just want to make sure you do that in a healthy way. No, just guys want to do really well and and play well, and so um, yeah, and he's one of those guys. So he's he's got high expectations for himself and the team, which is a good thing. And uh, but he's he's doing great for us. That's what I thought when I heard that too. I thought he's being a little hard on himself here because he really recovered. Yeah, no, he keeps he keeps going. That's the thing I like about him is that if something bad happens, he's not a guy that just uh, goes on the tank or anything like that. Is he he reloads and gets ready to go again? And uh, like I said, he's been uh, he's been a huge reason why we've been able to to win a lot of games this year. Okay, so what do you want the team to focus on then for this upcoming game? We'll just focus on Saskatchewan. So the the next two games, we play the next two Friday nights at home against Saskatchewan and Winnipeg, which both games will have a big impact on where we finish in the standings. But um, just dedicate um, all our efforts and energy to Saskatchewan, and we start on that today. We have our first practice of the week, and uh, so we'll just try to find a way to beat Saskatchewan. It's big because, like I said, we would uh, clinch a home playoff spot. We'd have the tiebreaker on Saskatchewan, and so – that's uh, that's job number one this week. That would be amazing. All right, good luck. All right, thanks. Thank you. Have a great week. Have a great game on Friday. That is Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. We'll talk to him next Monday. But yeah, they've clinched a playoff spot, but now they want a home playoff game, which that would be great, wouldn't it? So remember, you can always check out those BC Lions games on AM 730 and sometimes right here on CKNW too. This is Mornings with Simi. Tell you, this next one is one of these stories where I thought, is this actually real? Would somebody be so stupid and so arrogant to actually do something like this? Well, it's a question that a lot of people are asking, particularly in the community of Port Coquitlam. After there were some signs that were put up promoting a, I can't even believe I'm saying this, quote, whites only moms and tots group. It has sparked outrage all over the place, including with the mayor of Port Coquitlam, Brad West, who joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Did this seem real to you when you heard about it? Uh, No, but uh, these days, I mean, it's hard to be surprised by just about anything. Um, It seems that, you know, extremes are on all sorts of sides are, are really agitating on a, a number of different fronts. Um, so it, you know, it was obviously incredibly concerning. I mean, first and foremost, I, I'm, I'm a dad. Uh, I'm a dad to, to two young kids. My kid, two boys are six and two. And, you know, um, one of the best parts about living in our community is going to the park and, to the playground and watching all the kids yahooing around and having fun and, you know, big smiles. And when you're out there, you know, they're just playing together and they're having a great time. It's a beautiful thing to see. And, and, and it, and it's the full diversity of our community that's out there. Um, And the fact that there'd be an individual who, you know, uh, who looks at that and, and thinks that that's something wrong and, try to spread this hateful message is um, just completely unacceptable. As soon as the city became aware of it, we had bylaw officers dispatched. Um, They were unable to find any of the signs. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure if this was just one sign that was put up somewhere and then it was ripped down by someone else. Um, But uh, obviously there was a very quick response by the city here. 
what would you say to people who feel targeted by this, who feel like, oh, I can't believe this is happening in my community? Well, it, it's not who we are. And, you know, that, that gets demonstrated every single day um, in, in big ways and in little ways. And, you know, probably in ways like I just described, um, go to any playground in, in Port Coquitlam and you're going to see kids from all walks of life playing together and, and having fun. Um, and, and there's no, there's no judgment. There's no hate. Uh, it, and it's beautiful and it's, and it's our community and, and that's what we're about. And that's how we build the social fabric of Port Coquitlam and all of our communities. And, you know, I think when these things happen, um, it's important that we have a strong response like we've had. We deal with it. Uh, and we remember that this is not, this is not who we are. This is, you know, this is one individual or, or a, you know, small group of individuals who for their own, you know, sick, twisted reasons, I guess, are trying to spread a, a hateful message. But it's not going to work uh, because I know that in our community and in communities right across the province, um, you know, people want us to, they want us all to belong. And, and that is really important. What will the city do here? Then will, will the city remain on alert for these signs? Well, we're definitely going to have a bylaw out and about continuing to monitor our, our bylaws are on uh, the front lines every day as it is uh, looking for issues in the community that need to be addressed. And so certainly I know they will step things up. Uh, we've passed along all the information we had to the RCMP uh, and we encourage our, our residents, if they see something like this, to report it, report it to the, the RCMP uh, so it can be dealt with. Um, you know, but our focus is going to be continuing to build a community where everyone is celebrated, where everyone feels that they belong. Um, and every child, no, no matter the color of their skin, can participate fully in everything that Port Coquitlam has to offer. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of the work that we're doing on that front. And, you know, we're not going to let some garbage like this uh, distract us. Is there something that you think the RCMP can do here? Like, to, can they try to find out who this is? Um, I, I can't comment on what they're doing in terms of an investigation. I know they're aware of it. It's been passed on to them. Um, you know, a lot of folks have uh, surveillance cameras these days. Uh, so maybe it would be possible to identify the, the individual who uh, put up this poster. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing reports there may have been a, a similar poster as well in Coquitlam at the SkyTrain system. Um, and so I hope the police are, are checking cameras to see if they can identify the individual or individuals uh, involved. All right. Well, Mayor West, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. That is Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, with his reaction to uh, the story that's kind of been all over social media over the weekend about a sign that was put up in Port Coquitlam. And it, when you read it, when I see the picture, I thought my first reaction was, oh, this has got to be a joke. Like somebody didn't actually do this. But uh, it, it apparently is is real enough in that there is a, a group uh, on a social media site uh, that is a part of this. So it's a sign at Porco Quitlam that was promoting a, quote, whites-only moms and tots group. And obviously, commenter people have a lot to say about that. There is a Telegram chat that they've got. Apparently, that is private. And the their messages on that suggest that um, there is, they're happy with the response that they've gotten from this. So again, you know, you always take these things with a great big grain of salt. Is somebody just trying to provoke, like Mayor West says? Is it just... A sign of the times of trying to get the outrage going. I don't know. It's really hard to say, but it's, it's not something you can ignore when it's up there like that out in the community and people do get concerned about it. So as Mayor West says, though, that is just not something they want to see. They've told bylaw officers in Port Coquitlam to be on alert for those and take them down right away. Uh, but there will be a lot of discussion about that, I am sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Can we actually make food allergies a thing of the past? Well, the Food Allergy Immunotherapy Program certainly hopes to do that, but people have to be able to access it first, right? And especially all over the province where there are wait lists to try and use this program. So what is it all about? Let's find out. Dr. Edmund Chan is with us now, a pediatric allergist and clinical investigator at BC Children's Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Chan, thank you for joining us. 
Hello. Thank you, Timmy. Thank you for inviting me. What is the Food Allergy Immunotherapy Program? So, yeah, the Food Allergy Immunotherapy Program, we abbreviate it FATE program, is a uh, UBC and BC Children's Hospital Research Institute collaboration. And uh, it's where we try to do research on uh, food immunotherapy treatment programs that are going to be most feasible and practical for the real world. So try to take it one step and apply the knowledge through smaller studies to the large scale of the real world. Okay, so how do we do that? Like what kinds of things do we do? Yeah, so when we started the program, there was a pilot phase to try to study the quote-unquote lowest hanging fruit. So which patients and which children would have the safest outcomes, the most effective outcomes would be easiest to treat. And that first phase taught us that the preschoolers, especially the infants less than 12 months, but all preschoolers up to three to five years of age have better outcomes than older children. So that's where we focused our efforts initially. And we published uh, several studies with a really excellent safety data, for example, uh, only 0.4% of the preschoolers had a severe reaction during the build-up dosing. And that, that gave us a really good start. Uh, since then, we've now come up with a different approach for older children, six and up. And that involves a smaller dose of what they're allergic to under the tongue uh, called sublingual immunotherapy. But eventually, we aspire to transition those children to the same oral immunotherapy that the preschoolers start with. So with food immunotherapy, what we're really trying to do is uh, educate the immune system, teach it to accept what it's allergic to by giving it small doses um, and then gradually increasing the dose to what we call a maintenance dose. Okay, so rather than having them avoid this food for the rest of their life, we're giving them minute versions of it so that they can build up immunity to it. That's right, exactly. It's, uh, you can picture it as uh, your immune system being uh, quite um, uh, needing and necessary of education when it's young and when it's uh, beginning to shift uh, towards uh, an allergic pathway. And it's not just a, a one-time lesson. So, you know, you think of your average student going to school. They have to go to school every single day, get the same uh, information drilled into them uh, day in, day out. And it's no different with this food immunotherapy. It's a treatment that requires typically three-plus years. Um, and, you know, there's different phases, basically, until you get to uh, the but exit oral challenge, where, where they have to demonstrate for us that they tolerate a full serving of what they used to be allergic to. Okay, but that's amazing, Dr. Chan. Like, you're telling parents out there whose child has what would have been a potentially life-threatening allergy that you can get them to a point that in five years they might be able to actually consume this fruit. That's correct. I mean, it does sound quite far-fetched, you know, when we just talk about it like that. And I, I still, like, I, I, when I'm in clinic and I'm, I've reached with the family that juncture where they're doing that exit challenge with the full dose, um, and thinking back to three to five years ago, when even a tiny, tiny amount, uh, let's say less than 10 milligram of the protein. So like, you know, let, let's say less than 1% of a peanut would have triggered a reaction. So to witness that, um, yeah, it, it's just really quite overwhelming. It's very emotional for the families. At that very moment, we actually have a, a wall of quote unquote champions uh, on, in our clinic. Everyone who graduates at that moment gets their photo taken and it's just a celebration. Well, yeah, I can see why there would be a wait list for this program then. So how, how can people access this like all over the province? Yeah, so access is a big part of the research uh, because there's not you know, enough practitioners, uh, allergists offering this treatment. And so it's all about, you know, how can we design different protocols to match different risk levels? And also, how can we utilize technology to assist us. So a silver lining of COVID actually was virtual care. And we've used it to great effect in this FATE program because in our pilot phase, we didn't, for example, have enough physical space, enough examining rooms to see all these children with food allergy for their food immunotherapy. And so when COVID hit and we had this virtual option, then, you know, we have one team doing the initial in-person assessments. That same team does the exit challenge I described, but all the visits in between are done by this UBC Research Institute Collaboration Research Program virtually. So they're online from the comfort of their home, especially helpful for remote uh, and rural families. 
And we're, they're doing like easily eight, nine, 10, 11 visits with the uh, nurses uh, quite often. So it's, um, it's, it's really being innovative. It's uh, not being afraid to uh, uh, push the envelope, but also uh, maintaining safety as the number one consideration. Right. But you must still have an awful lot of parents who want to sign up for this. Can you take them all? No, we, we can't. We do. Like, you know, for example, um, our clinic itself has a waiting list of a year and a half on average. And then the, the FATE program, once you get to that research phase, has a wait list of at least uh, one year and, and quite often longer. So with those types of wait times, we do have to be creative. For example, I was describing that infants have the best outcome and want to harness that age. So then we'll, we'll try as hard as possible to triage infants to be seen sooner. Um, access is really something our, our whole team is putting their thinking caps on all the time uh, and, and really trying to see if the healthcare system can have different uh, partners and, and increase access and then increase education and training, um, you know, uh, right. throughout the system. So what you're saying, Dr. Chan, is that you need to expand this program. Yes, that's right. And we can, we can only do that, uh, you know, with continued research and continued support from everyone who uh, is very excited about doing research at, at this phase. Um, we're really, you know, beyond, in my uh, opinion, the moment where it's small clinical trials just to prove that you can even do it outside of research. We're really, you know, trying to match how this, pro- this program and, and, and its treatments can match our healthcare resources and, and the limited resources that every healthcare system has. Wow, it's a great program. I love it. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you for your interest in me. That's Dr. Edmund Chan, pediatric allergist, clinical investigator at BC Children's Hospital's Research Institute. So this FATE program is something you should definitely investigate if you have a child with a food allergy. It is, you can just Google this, it is Food Allergy Immunotherapy Program, and then BC Children's Hospital, or F-A-I-T. It's amazing. They also have a fundraiser to support the program, by the way. It's happening at the Vancouver Aquarium on November 23rd. Tickets are available Uh, for that online now, but it sounds like they need the support. If you want to help your child be like essentially cured of a food allergy, this holds amazing promise for the future. It's phenomenal. I can't even imagine 10, 20 years ago, that way of thinking, but boy, things do change, don't they? For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.